so this morning we're working through, uh, we're going to continue to work through Core 52. That's this book right here, if you're newer. Um, it's, it's a book we've been working through for the past few months. They're out under the TV if you want one. It's 52 major themes in the Bible, and each week has a few pages. And um, the pages are the topic, some essays, some extra reading, some life application points, things like that. And the idea is you have this book in your possession. That means you're going to be familiar over the course of a year with 52 major themes in the Bible, which is most of the Bible. And um, it's just been a nice devotional to work through. So go grab a copy if you want one in the, under the TV out in the lobby. And uh, this morning's topic is communion. Based on your background, if you have a church background, then you may have known it as communion, the Lord's Supper, um, or the Eucharist. If you have a Catholic background or, or some other um, faiths like that. And so um, that's what we're talking about today. And um, it's this, it's this um, ritual that's a part of, of, of the Christian faith. Most people are at least familiar with communion or the Eucharist. And, and we're going to talk through um, what the Bible says about it, where it came from, um, the actual meal from the life of Jesus that it came from. And then I hope I'll uh, give you some significance because I believe uh, and have found in my own life um, in, in throughout uh, the thousands of years of church tradition um, of walking with Jesus, that, that it's, it's a powerful ritual that can deeply impact your walk with God. And so um, uh, before we get to the meal itself, <clears throat> the, the, um, the scriptures uh, in the Gospels that detail the, the meal um, that Jesus had to start the ritual, I want to move to another account, um, um, which took place actually about a month and a half after uh, the first communion meal and um, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, this is a powerful account that I get a lot from, helps me frame up um, sort of um, this life that, that we find ourselves in. So I'm going to start in Acts chapter 1. It says, So when they had come together, they asked Jesus. Again, this is post resurrection, disciples are gathered together. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Here's what they're asking Jesus. Is it time for you to be the ruler of this world? Will you put things back together now? We followed you through these three years. You're crucified. Now you're back with us. Is it go time, time for you to make all things new? That's what they're asking him. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. <clears throat> but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he'd said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took them out of their sight. So he, he levitates into the sky. And a cloud hides him from uh, their sight. And while they're gazing into heaven... As he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, angels, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, I get a lot out of this bittersweet passage here, because if you follow Jesus, this is the part of time that we find ourselves in. Like their hope was, okay, Jesus, 
This is a messed up world. Is it time for you to rule and make things right? And they were probably a little disappointed when he said, that's not for you to know. Instead, you're going to be my witnesses here. You're going to tell people about me. And then he levitates and leaves. You're going to get power from the Holy Spirit to hang out here and tell people about me. And he levitates. And then two angels uh, appear and tell him, you know, this Jesus that went up into the clouds, he will come back. But don't stand here waiting. Get to doing your thing out there. And if you follow Jesus, this is the time that we live in now. We're hanging out waiting for this promise that he will one day return in physical form and he will rule and he will make all things new and all things right. But we're in this season of waiting. Now this is very bittersweet because we have the promise but it, it's, it, it communicates that kind of um, um, uh, uh, present but not. In other words, um, uh, we're in this waiting season where we can sense the presence of God at times, and, and the scriptures are clear that God is near, and yet there's also an awareness. Now think of it like this, um, or I should say, like, here's something to think about. And I don't know how it works. I'm going to say that 20 times during this sermon. I don't know how it works. Okay? Jesus chose... God in his wisdom um, um, chose uh, to take on flesh. And, and flesh has certain limitations. I'm not ready to call Jesus finite, though it is a little bit, in that he had this physical body with edges. And, and it's very important in the Gospels. Uh, they call out the fact that the risen Jesus ate, okay, and he could be touched. Like he tells Thomas, touch my hands and feel the, feel the holes in the, from, from the nails, and he eats breakfast with his disciples. That it's very important to the gospel writers that we understand that Jesus had a physical body, and his resurrected body was physical. And Jesus could have sat there uh, with or stood there in Jerusalem and been like, I'm with you always, poof! And turned into vapor, and the vapor spreads, and it's like, there, okay, at that point he became a spiritual being, and he's everywhere. <clears throat> now somehow, Jesus is everywhere. He lives in the hearts or in the inner beings of, of his followers, and, um, and, and he says that where two or more of us are gathered, he's there with us. So he's here in this room with us, and yet, in the scriptures, he maintains a physical body, that levitates out of sight with a promise that that physical body will return and rule one day and make all things right. So there's this kind of, of, um, of space that we find ourselves in where we are without the physical presence of Jesus while we wait for our promised land, for the day when he returns and makes all things right. And so as we talk about what communion does, this will come together in a little bit, I hope. Um, communion helps us on the journey, waiting for Jesus to return in physical form 
to rule this earth and make all things new and all things right. So communion, in a very real way, helps us keep centered and sane as we live in this space of waiting, as we live in the age of faith. Okay, let me move on to the actual, um, the moment when um, Jesus instituted the ritual of communion. He's having a meal with his followers on the night that he would be arrested leading up to his crucifixion. It's his last uh, time um, with his followers before um, the crucifixion. It says this in Luke 22. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. So this was a new ritual that he started involving bread and a cup. And he told them, take the bread and remember that Jesus offered up his body for us on the cross. And then he gave them wine, or scholars debate whether it was wine or grape juice based on the, the, the religious festival that was happening. doesn't really matter, I don't think. And told them to drink it and remember the blood that was being shed for a new covenant, which means new promise. Now let me explain what that means if you're new to all this. Um, the Old Covenant, or Old Testament, or Old Promise, was before the time of Jesus, where God said to the Israelites, here's a, a set of rules, follow these rules, worship only me, only God, and you'll be my people, you'll be my children. That was their old promise. It didn't go so well, following all the rules and doing all the rituals, and it didn't go so well. Jesus comes and offers up a new promise. It involved his sacrifice on the, on the cross or, or his blood, okay? So he says, I'm going to sacrifice um, uh, myself on the cross, and, and my blood then becomes your death penalty payment. So now it's not about you trying to earn your way to get with God. Instead, through faith in that sacrifice, we're made right with God. That's the new promise. And so he says this cup um, is the new covenant, the new promise uh, paid for in blood. Okay, so, so that's the essence of the, of the elements of communion, Lord's Supper, Eucharist. And it all started there at that meal. Now, um, so this meal, <clears throat> these elements, the, the bread and the wine or the bread and the juice, the bread and the cup, become the ritual that centers followers of Jesus around this new promise while we wait for Jesus to make all things new. It reminds us of God's love for us. It reminds us of where we are in the story. Okay, the Bible says that the cross is the ultimate proof of God's love for you. And this ritual reminds us of that. Now, there is strong evidence in the scriptures and some extra-biblical sources, that this ritual was a regular part 
of gatherings of Jesus followers. So here's some examples. This is Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Now, scholars agree that when we see the ritualistic breaking of bread in the New Testament, it's referring to communion. So they devoted themselves to communion, just like to prayer. It was a regular part of their gatherings. Then in Acts 20, verse 7, we see on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. So on Sunday, they came together to break bread. It was a regular part of the early church. Now, here's the money verse, and it comes from something called the didache, which means the teaching. The didache was discovered, and it was, it's, it's basically a pastor's guide to leading a church. And it's from like the 50s A.D. So we're talking within a couple decades of, um, of, of the church starting after the resurrection. So this is really early on. It would have almost certainly had the oversight of the, the apostles, the disciples. And here's what it says. And on the Lord's own day, Sunday, gather yourselves together and break bread. Take communion and give thanks, first confessing your transgressions, that your sacrifice may be pure. So there is ample evidence that in the ancient church, communion was a part of their weekly gatherings. Nearly every time they met together, they took part in this ritual. Now let me take a minute and talk you through um, some, some personal, like, like some, this is, this is significant to me. I think it can be significant to you as you actually take communion if you choose to, okay? Now, hang with me on this. I find this stuff fascinating. You may not. I also read biblical archaeological today. So sometimes the things that I get excited about, not everybody does. So hang with me. <clears throat> I'm also going to ask that, that, that I'm going to borrow some credibility here because I don't have time. Like you don't want me to take the time to walk you through all the Old Testament connections here or we're not going to beat the Baptist to Taco Loco. Okay? So I'm going to give you like the, the, speed, the speed round version of this. Um, the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible. Um... It's the story of Moses leading the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Okay? So they're in slavery in Egypt. Moses, through the plagues and all that, he leads them out on this 40-year journey to where? To the promised land. Okay, so on this 40-year journey to the promised land, Moses leads the Israelites on a four, to Exodus 40-year journey to the promised land. There's a problem in the desert during these 40 years. There's no food. So, God sends what? Anybody know what God sends? Manna, which means what is it? Because they walked in and they're like, what's this stuff all over the ground, okay? That was bread from heaven, and the Israelites would go out and they would gather the bread in the morning, and it would sustain them through the day. They were not allowed to gather more than one day's worth of bread, except on, on the day before Sabbath they could gather two days so that they didn't have to do any work on Sabbath. So manna sustained the Israelites on their faith journey to the Promised Land. Very significant when you read the Gospels, the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the biographies of Jesus, okay? Underneath the framework of the Gospels, if you know what you're looking for, 
they go a long way to try to connect Jesus with Moses because in the ancient world, the Jews believed very, very strongly, and this is well documented, that there would be a second Moses, largely because Moses said, God will raise up another one like me, okay? So there would be a second Moses. Step back. Um, in Jesus' day, the Israelites are oppressed by Rome, okay? They're, they're, they're reduced, they're oppressed, they're not happy. And, and, and they believed that there would be a second Moses who would lead them to on a second exodus to the real promised land and lasting promised land and eternal promised land. They believed it. It's everywhere. There will be a second Moses, also called the Messiah, and he will lead us on a second exodus, and we will get to the promised land that's going to stay forever. And they also believed that in that journey, the storehouses of manna would be opened again, and bread would come from heaven to sustain them on that journey to the final and lasting promised land. Well documented. They believed it. <clears throat> when you read the Gospels, if you're familiar with that, and if you're familiar with the stories of Moses, what you'll see is there are allusions all through the Gospels, especially John, connecting Jesus to Moses. They want those ancient Jewish people, readers, to see that Jesus is the new Moses, and he's leading us to the promised land on the second exodus. And what the ancient Christians, especially with the Jewish background, believed, that not only was Jesus the bread from heaven, in fact, he says, I'm the bread come down from heaven. I'm the bread of life, okay? But they connected communion, the ritualistic eating of bread on a regular basis throughout the journey as we go to the promised land and wait for all things to be made new and right. They believed that communion was that connection, the sustaining presence of God. See, the ancient Jews, up to the time of Jesus, closely associated bread with the presence of God because of manna. In fact, the bread that was always displayed in their temple was called the bread of the presence. So bread was the presence of God. It was the life-giving, sustaining presence of God on the journey to the promised land. And, and for me, to make that ancient connection unlocks communion in a powerful way. Because what we're going to see in a minute, this is no ordinary ritual. This is, this is no ordinary store-bought bread and Welch's grape juice. Okay, there is something powerful in communion and that connection helps me. This is, this, we'll talk about why, but this is the bread that God offers. This is the manna that sustains me on this blind journey to the promised land because it can feel like a desert a lot of the time. And sometimes I need that spiritual sustenance from God. All right, <clears throat> let's talk through some of the things the scriptures say about communion that I think take it beyond an ordinary ritual, okay? First comes from 1 Corinthians 10. This is Paul. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break? So he's talking about communion a participation in the body of Christ. Now, 
Occurrence number two. I don't even know what that means. Okay? A participation in the body and blood of Jesus, of Christ on the cross. Here's what I know. That doesn't sound like an ordinary ritual. Somehow a participation in the death on the cross that happened 2,000 years ago. In taking communion, we participate with Jesus on the cross. Now, I assume that's connected with our forgiveness, with the death penalty that was paid for us. But that's no ordinary ritual. There's something transcendent about that language. A participation in the death of Jesus on the cross. When the trays are passed, somehow that connection's made in the spiritual world. I don't know what that means. Paul takes it a step further in the next chapter. 1 Corinthians 11, 23-38, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Now this is significant here because sometimes when Paul writes, he writes, I'm just kind of riffing here, this is good advice, but I don't know if it's from God. Like he really writes that out. He doesn't say riffing. Though he probably did in Greek. It just... um, but then there are other times where he says, this I know is from God. Like lean in, this is coming straight from the mouth of God. So here he says, this I received from the Lord and I'm passing it on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then... Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, does that sound like more than just a typical religious ritual? To me, it does. So somehow... I don't know how it works. The elements of communion, the bread and the cup, are so connected to the body and blood of Jesus. In fact, some faiths, and many of you grew up Catholic, I know, um, um, connect it as the actual, like it becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus. Somehow, it's so connected that to take communion in an unworthy manner is to sin against the very body and blood of Jesus. It's that important. It's that significant. It's that transcendent. It's that powerful. Now third, we get a command from Paul that communion is a time for self-examination. Now, the ancient Christians weren't afraid of communion. Like, we shouldn't be afraid of communion. I don't want you to, you know, pass the trees and, you know, start shaking because you're worried about sinning against the body and blood of Jesus. Okay, they weren't. Communion was a time of love and celebration and thanksgiving. But it was important that they examine themselves, that they really thought about how they were approaching Jesus in their life, about their sin life, and they confessed their sins to God before they took communion. Um, like it was a part 
of, of growth and, and, and spiritual health. It, it, it brought them back and centered them around the forgiveness of God. And, and I think that's why we shouldn't be too concerned and you know, let guilt uh, keep us from communion because the whole thing is about God's grace and forgiveness. But what he's saying is, is um, you don't take communion all willy-nilly. Like, it's a big deal, or it can become a threat to your spiritual, maybe even physical health, according to Paul. It's a time of self-reflection and self-examination, and it is intimately connected to the real sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, which was the ultimate act of love for us. And this became central to the spiritual health and to the gathering of the ancient church. Now, real quick, let me, let me just, uh, as a side note, walk you through um, a challenge for us at Polaris. Now, in the previous um, parts of, of that section where Paul talks a lot about communion, he says that, that the worst thing that can happen at communion is for um, one group to, like, run ahead of the other group or for, for everybody to, to, be, to be on different ground. Like, when, when we take communion, we should all be on equal ground with each other and, and, and comfortable with what we're doing. Everybody should have the equal opportunity kind of thing. Everybody should have an equal opportunity at the table of God to take communion. And that's why, and I know it can be a little bit laborious at times, we take it every Sunday, and before we do, we explain um, what we're doing. And it can kind of be, and people ask me every now and then, do we have to really explain every time, yeah, you're going to get two cups, and one of the cups has... Um, juice in it and the bottom cup has bread in it and you take one, take one, put them in the if we have to do all that it kind of kills the mood but what's extremely important in the scriptures is that everybody comes to the table equal so what I don't want to do is an environment where hey this group knows what they're doing this new family they don't know what we're doing and they're left out and they're like so we take a little extra time to say Here's why we're doing what we're doing, and here's how you can participate with us if you want to. So I just want to kind of explain that. And, and also, um, some people ask why we take communion every Sunday. Doesn't that take away from the significance, things like that? And while I have respect for faith groups that maybe take it quarterly, and they do so to maintain uh, a uniqueness to it, um, for me, my bias is that... Um, I try to do things as close as, as we can to the way uh, the ancient Christians, uh, to the way we understand as, as the leadership and eldership, um, um, the way they did it in the early church. And our interpretation is that, that they took it every week and that it was a vital part of their um, group gathering every week. And so that's why we take communion every Sunday. Um, um, for me, it's vital that we be called back to... Um, to the cross and, and to um, the centrality of the message of, of Jesus was here and he ascended and, um, and he will return and make all things right. And in the meantime, this is our bread that sustains us. Um, that, that message is the bread that sustains us through this difficult life that we live is um, God's love poured out for us on the cross. And so that's why we do that. Um, that's why we do that every week. So one last scripture, and then the servers are going to come around with communion trays. So if you're doing the communion thing, you can go get, get the trays now, unless they're already out there. Um, good, some people are going back. I got nervous there for a minute. Um, one last scripture, and um, 
if you don't, when, when communion is passed, don't, you, know, you don't, don't feel obligated to take communion. The Bible doesn't say you have to take communion. Um, just help us by passing the trays if, you're not, if you don't want to do that today. Um, we're going to do one last song, and during that song, while Maggie's singing, whenever you want to take um, the bread and uh, representing the body of Jesus and the, the juice, um, representing his blood. Again, it's a, it's a stack of one stack, two cups that have both those elements in it. You can do that and then put the cups um, in the little slots on the back of the pew. Um, Luke ends his gospel in Luke 24 with the story of the risen Jesus walking a good distance with a couple of disciples. It's called the road to Emmaus. They were distraught that their Savior was crucified. Um, it was the day of the resurrection. And they were reluctant to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. And somehow Jesus withholds his identity from these two men. They don't recognize him. And he walks with them and talks with them through the Old Testament scriptures. He talks them through the prophecies of old to explain to them why the Messiah had to die and then be raised again. And eventually Jesus shares a meal with them. And if I have a lay verse, it's here in this little, this little passage of, of the Bible. Uh, this one just, um, I guess you could say it gives me chills when... Um, because it's an incredible summary of life with Jesus and the scriptures. It says, when Jesus was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us as he walked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. This world is an unnerving place. Each week presents trials and challenges that shake us to the core and cloud our vision. This life is not for the faint of heart. I'm 45 and I'm just now beginning to realize what it means to have a heavy heart. Problem after problem, trial after trial. Well, as you sit at this table today, my prayer is that Jesus would make himself known to you through the breaking of bread. That he would open your eyes to his presence through this bread, this life-sustaining bread in this moment we call communion. Because we really need the bread and the cup.